Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your new bub B, and today I am doing another episode of the Digital Quarantine Book Tour. Uh, I'm joined today by the author of Fly Away, a... How would you describe it? A, like, sort of a mystery of fairy tales is a phrase that just came into my brain that might not mean anything, but might be really compelling to somebody. So, if it is, listen on. <laughs> um, <laughs> that author is Kathleen Jennings. Hello, Kathleen. Hello. <laughs> it's lovely to be here. <laughs> yeah, you've got me at my punchiest, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so I just... I. Just read the entire book today. Um, it was uh, a joyous... Uh, joyous is an interesting word in the context of this sort of dark fantasy novel, but it was a joyous read. Thank you. Do you want to um, sort of introduce the book to our uh, listeners and, and yourself as well? Sure. So the book is called Fly Away. It's, it goes back and forth on whether people call it a novella or a novel, a short novel. <laughs> And I, I love that, a mystery of fairy tales description. Mostly it's being called Australian Gothic, but how people describe it, it's fascinating depending on what they read. So people who like fairy tales call it, like yourself, a mystery of fairy tales or a fairy tale novel. People who aren't from that say it's horror. I'm like, I can't help. There's just stuff in fairy tales. It's not very nice. And one person said, would you call this speculative fiction? I said, well, yes. She said, I just really liked the realism in it. I was like, there are some things which seem a little implausible in a realistic context, but if you say so. So it's uh, slightly it's uh, slightly cross-genre in that respect, but definitely Australian Gothic is a title that's sticking. That's interesting, because I actually tend to lean much more Gothic, but for whatever reason, it didn't hit me that... I guess it's... There is def- I, I, I think of Gothic and I think of houses specifically, and there is definitely a central house in this story, but maybe it's more it's more a town and a landscape than, uh, you know, a big house with spooky shit happening. <laughs> yes, and that's quite common in particularly Australian Gothic because of the absence of large English houses, I suppose, <laughs> that have been around past a certain point in time. But that sense of history and landscape and fear or uh, terror, sense of uncertainty and mysteries and doubling, transformation and all those elements are quite common. But I'm glad you found it joyous because something I was really trying to do with this book was to capture a beauty. And a lot of Australian Gothic tends to be very... Uh, Cry in the Night, even a bit Mad Max, uh, Evil Angels, like lots of dead red heart and dust and barren plains and civilization decaying. And there is a subgenre of it that is incredibly beautiful. It doesn't gloss over horrible things happening, but it loves the landscape, which a lot of Australian Gothic still has that very English reading of the landscape. Mm. And that's what I was trying to at least lean towards with writing Fly Away. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, I think I would not have phrased it quite that way, but I, that reads as true to me, having having read the book, um, and or successful, even. <laughs> um, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so before we continue talking Australia and Gothic and other things, um, would you be interested in doing a, a quick reading from the novel? Ella? Novella? Book. <laughs> all right i'll do a quick reading from the beginning just a just a page into the book of inglewell's three towns only runnergate still had a pulse woodwild was already nearly vanished carter's crossing had barely been they held to each other by fraying ribbons of fractured blue black bitumen and cords of ribbed dirt fringed with pale sand or beaded with blood-red pebbles. Not stained by massacres, no, nor cursed, whatever people whispered about how the Spicer family first established Runnergate Station. That triangle tangle of roads and tracks held the district of Inglewell. Hills and scrub glittered in the powder-white light, fading to chalk blue. Sharp grasses fluttered pale in the paddocks, green and burgundy on the verge. Grey huts subsided into themselves like memory. Then the plunge into purple shadows, the troll rattle of an old timber bridge, 
a secret of dim emerald and the barrier shriek of cicadas. Then up again, sky tumbled, grass fogged. It was a fragile beauty, too easy to bleach with dust and history, to dehydrate with heat, bleed with the retort of a shotgun or the strike of a bull bar, blind with sun on metal. Easy to turn from it, disgusted and afraid, but if you got out of a car to stretch your legs and instead were still, if you crouched down and waited, it would find you, nosing among the grass like the breeze. The light and loveliness would get into your bones, into your veins. It would beat in your blood like drumming under the ground. Memory bled and frayed there, where ghosts stood silent by fence posts. There the bone horse kept pace with night drivers, while high branches shifted continuously, even on breathless days, and creaked with the passage of megarities and other creatures unseen. And at midday long shadows whispered under the trees. And what trees? Bottle and box, paper and iron, thorned and blossomed under the unutterable light, the sky blew as breath as enamel, or beaten like copper, everything beneath it turned to metal, or else translucent. Trees like lanterns, like candles, ghosts and bones, the fibrous skeletons of moth-slain cactus and beetle-eaten lantern bush leaned over the opal-veined bulk of petrified limbs spilled in empty creek beds. Trees bled rosin like rubies, sprouted goitrous nests, suspended cat's cradles of spiderwebs, spinning disks of silk. Trees stood hard as bronze in still sunlight and stirred like a living hide in the rolling advent of a storm. If you were born to run a gate with all its fragile propriety, its tidy civilization, its ring fence of roads and paddocks, wires and blood, there was nothing else in the world beyond but trees. Excellent. Thank you. Um, yeah. I mean, that that totally hits on exactly what we were just talking about, right? <laughs> like, the landscape, the, or the, the beauty of the landscape, and, and the way your book takes it and fills it with, you know, with the, the speculative fiction, the stuff of fairy tales and gothic literature. Um, and how did you, how did you come toward the, I guess, the genre aspects of this? Was that how it started? Did it begin in, in fairy tales and gothic literature style stuff? Or was it more like, I want to write about Australia and then introduce these other things? Or probably a little bit of both is often the answer to these sorts of questions. <laughs> Definitely a little bit of both. Although with these particular, with the fragments that started to come, as I was drafting it, the fragments that came together and became Flyaway were always very clearly set in something like Australia and something like the areas of Australia in which I'd grown up. As I worked on it and brought them together, they more clearly triangulated, I suppose, into that particular landscape which makes up Inglewell of the story. But they were very much growing out of my experience with the landscape. I have another short story, long short story, Undyne Love, which was reprinted on Tor.com recently, which is loosely connected to this. And in that case, I'd started wanting to do a gothic story. I'd been reading a lot of like early 1800s gothic, which is fascinating when you consider that Jane Austen's characters are reading about people wrestling anacondas in Saigon and doing all of this wild adventure gothic. <laughs> and <laughs> I'd wanted to capture some of the overwrought nature of a couple of those stories in a modern context, and I'd started setting it at a, um, a beachside town in Australia and then started moving further and further west. And the further west I took it, the more familiar and right the story felt. And certainly as Fly Away really crystallised at this non-existent place called Inglewell, which is very influenced by where I grew up, the stories started to, I think, breathe and walk on their own. And part of that, I suspect, is that I grew up in Western Queensland. And a lot of the stories that I read about Australia, especially as a child, were very much bushfires and again, the dead red heart and dust and terrible things mm -hmm. happening in one particular, like if anyone wants to scar themselves with <laughs> 90s Australian kids horror, there's a book by Gary Crew called Strange Objects, which just gave me nightmares for ages about the consequences of the wreck of the Batavia. Anyway, <laughs> but 
that wasn't the landscape I was seeing around me, which was very, very beautiful. And at the same time, I was reading a lot of English fairy tales and fantasy. And so to the extent that I was imagining those, the visual vocabulary I had handy was Australian. And if my sister and I were out you know, pretending to be knights or Robin Hood or whatever in the trees, then that was happening among the ironbarks around the wattle trees. So a lot of flyaways trying to capture that beauty as I experienced it through a lens of fairy tales and vice versa. Yeah, that is lovely. <laughs> um, <laughs> Why, thank you. Your description of, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it should be um, no surprise to readers of this book, but hey, I'm a reader of this book and I was a little surprised by how spellbinding your description of yeah, where you Thank grew up you. was. I guess, yeah, I mean, just diving in a little deeper there, like you, you talked about the, the gothic stuff, but the it was the fairy tale aspect like um, an intentional, like structural thing or like were you were you drawing specifically from fairy tales or was that just like did that come later uh, or did it like, um, oop, I punched my microphone <laughs> uh what did it ever do to you yeah <laughs> it has been very nice to me for many years and and i apologize friend <laughs> <laughs> so with the fairy tale aspect a little of all of those i suspect i did very much i think one of my bios says was raised on fairy tales in western queensland i'm fairly familiar with quite a few fairy tales and have found them as an illustrator and a writer, something that I keep coming back to. And being quite familiar with them from the point of view of loving them, less so from an academic perspective, I find them incredibly useful structurally and as a shorthand and as a way of just seeing things, doing things when I'm like doing little observation exercises or teaching a creativity course at the university. There's an exercise I like to do with people where you go out and you sit down and you're like, okay, think of Little Red Riding Hood and now find all the elements of that story in this room or in this patch of the great court and sort of as a template for observing the world, not from any great iconographic ancient archetypal thing or anything like that. I strongly feel that Little Red Riding Hood was probably first told in order to frighten people into going to bed on time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I find them very useful as a shorthand. And when people get into discussions of different narrative structures and so forth, for me, I find the easiest shorthand if I'm playing with the narrative structure is just to refer to a particular fairy tale because I'm familiar with it and I can sort of feel the rhythms of that in a less academic way than if I sit down and look at a particular structure from a particular era of history or culture so I tend to use them when I'm writing occasionally I'll be mixing ideas together and go what if Jane Eyre but Little Red Riding Hood but it's Rochester who's Little Red Riding Hood and Jane's the wolf and then use that as a lens to read Jane Eyre which is a lot of fun uh, Rochester yeah. even wears a red coat or cloak at one point and Jane is very <laughs> much the unearthly creature waiting beside the road as he rides home having strayed from the path of life so you can play with that and then you can use that to come up with a story but when I write a story often I'll get to the end and go okay I'm editing it there's something it needs something extra there's an emotional through line or some sort of structural element that's perhaps not quite in place and then what I'll often do is a really high level summary of my own story girl goes looking for brothers or a person goes looking for siblings and then I'll do the same with a couple extremely high level with a couple of my favorite fairy tales and then see which one is closest and then I'll use it sort of as a like a, a splint or a trellis to train the story against so I'm not making a retelling but I'm going okay this story has elements of Rapunzel I can use that to tighten the themes if I pick, maybe I don't want hair, but maybe I want, okay, something long and hanging, vines. Okay, I'm going to use a lot of vine imagery in this. That gives me a thematic thing to pick and choose because I put all the adjectives in when I'm writing and then hopefully, hopefully the right one's there when I go back and edit the others out. So it helps me choose that. But then it also goes, okay, there's that bit in Sleeping Beauty where 
this thing happens, like where there's the, in one version, the fairy godmother with her chariot of dragons and her messenger with the seven league boots. If I particularly am feeling that version of Sleeping Beauty that day, I'm like, okay, what, where is the messenger role in this story? Is there, a, is there that sense of someone going back and forth taking news and messages in a slightly supernatural way? No, or maybe that is what's missing. Maybe there's just that extra prop that the story needed. So in that sense, they, I do use them deliberately, structurally, kind of as a, a editing tool. They also come through in what I'm doing. And occasionally I'll sit down and go, I want to do a, there was an anthology a few years back called Dead Red Heart, which was Australian vampire stories. And my first thought was, I don't want to do Dead Red Heart. I'm going to make it rainy. <laughs> and the second was, Rainy, growing things. Okay, Thumbelina, a vampire, a vampire Thumbelina story. Huh. And then you use that <laughs> as the structure and it became about a vampire with no remaining human emotions attempting to kind of teach a newly arrived creature how to be human in a, in a very particular landscape. And so it, to, to the ex in Flyaway, to the extent that fairy tales show up in it, I didn't want it to be something that would sit on shelves everywhere as this is a fairy tale novel. I wanted people who know fairy tales to think, oh, yeah, a fairy tale novel. And people who don't know or approve of fairy tales go, oh, Australian Gothic literary realism. Right. <laughs> which, which was quite fun, but it's definitely hugely, there's fairy tale engines and structures and logic and patterns the whole way through. One thing I did do with that was very consciously try to not make it or any element of it a specific retelling of a specific fairy tale because I enjoy a good one-for-one -one fairy tale retelling but I find it, there's a very high risk of those that it becomes farcical or what if we replace right. Cinderella's horses with kangaroos <laughs> and I like something that thinks a bit more into that feeling of fairy tales without necessarily needing a directly applicable link so even though there are a few in here that are quite obvious I think where their primary fairy tale influences from, like the turncoat, has obvious strong Little Red Riding Hood references in it. But I also wanted it to refer to uh, Tamlin and to refer to other stories of faithfulness and transformation and promises and family secrets and some of Judith Wright's poetry <laughs> and a lot of other things without ever being a Little Red Riding Hood story. Right. I mean, so the thing I first thought of when you were t like talking about the structural qualities is um, there's there's a bit that definitely takes structural influence from the Pied Piper story and has a very interesting moment within that where a character within that story refers to it as like as though it was Sleeping Beauty. And so they like get they like have a productive misinterpretation of which fairy tale they're like living through a version of. And yeah, I, I think there is so like all of the things you're saying about using these uh, fairy tales as structure, like come through in really interesting ways. Thank you. And I'm really glad it read that way. I enjoy those. I love that productive misinterpretation which is actually one of my favorite ways of coming up with stories. I'm like, what if Robert Burns' poem to a mouse is actually being told by, you know, a revolutionary mouse or a very long-lived serial killer <laughs> or something like this? <laughs> so I, I, I love that as a technique. But also with those stories, this wasn't something I was thinking about when I was working on Flyaway, but a few people have referred to it as folk horror. And again, it's interesting seeing what those people read and don't because the more I think about it, the more I find that divide between mythic fairy tale fiction and folk horror for me is whether or not either the characters or the reader know the rules of the world. And if the characters or the reader know the rules of the fairy tale that they're in or of the t sort of myth that they're in, then it's probably mythic fiction even if it get, or fairy tale fiction, even if it gets very dark. But if they don't know the rules, either the characters or the author, then it's probably folk horror. Huh. And the same things can happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it's that yes yeah, so different different types of inevitability and comeuppance I suppose and also I'm really worried the bagpipers are all going to come for me at some point between this and the undyed love story and I I, I do love bagpipes <laughs> I learned bagpipes <laughs> for a couple of years to play them and they're just the oddest handymanist yeah <laughs> sort of instrument and I can't help it I keep putting them I put evil bagpipes in the stories and good bagpipes in the stories <laughs> and 
keep rereading other stories. It's like, could you put bagpipes in this? <laughs> That's the true structure of your writing is ba- very base levels. It, is there bagpipes in it? And then it's like, how do I miss or like reinterpret fairy tales and uh, and talk about the beauty of <laughs> the landscape? <Yes. laughs> and always that question with fairy tales too, and a bit with the gothic. Like if if for a lot of people the gothic is the old house or the crumbling castle, and if you don't have those in Australia there's in the academic sense a lot of discussion can it be Australian gothic without certain settings is it all gothic because it all started in the 1800s um, there is that sense which I think is sometimes left out of those conversations is the gothic is so self-referential like nearly every gothic book is extremely aware it's a gothic book and the characters are usually pretty aware and I think of Terry Pratchett's line about people running around in underwear nightdresses <laughs> women with branches of candles <laughs> And even though a lot of those elements come from that sense of like terror and decay and ancient houses crumbling on cliff edges and things, given the history of writing in that genre, there's a real beauty that's come out of that or a, a sense of aesthetic, the gothic aesthetic, or <laughs> whether it's goth aesthetic or gothic aesthetic or pop goth or anything like that, there is an appreciation of loveliness in there, which even if... The, earlier authors might not have intended it for specific books is there now and a large part of the pleasure of reading classic old house gothic novel is is that enjoyment of the place and yes i find it easy to find books which go okay decaying castle decaying small town but i wanted to lean into the loveliness as i said before as well with that and sometimes the experiment is going okay this fairy tale element this vision of a cave full of jewels or this sense of someone walking through a field of flowers and meeting something threatening on the road. How do I capture that aesthetic and repurpose that more than the plot? Yeah, this is okay. I feel like, I feel like we could be on this very specific topic the entire time, but I feel like there, there's so much in this book. We should talk about a bunch of things. Uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I guess, I mean, so only it's not as hard of a pivot, but um, one of the things I noticed is, um, it's not a hard pivot because I'm going back to the structure, which is deeply intertwined with fairy tales. Uh, one of the things I noticed when I was reading it is, um, for a, for a short novel, there are like kind of a lot of like named characters in it. Um, like there's the three sort of main folks who like go on the journey together, but there are a lot of incidental characters who end up named so that they can have their own story of some something strange happening or having had ha- having happened in the past. And I was just wondering, like, were you interested in in representing a bunch of different voices? Um, or were you just like, well, this this story should be told by this person who is obviously in this town? Um. I think I created some difficulties for myself with the first person viewpoint in mm. terms of I wanted to I started with a short story draft called Fly Away, which is basically the through spine of the novel as it is now. And as I expanded it and wanted to add these stories on, I realized I wanted them nested. Well, actually, so I was I was wailing about how I could get how I could get the story lengthened. Someone said you could just nest the stories. That's always how you lengthen your stories and I was like that's amazing it never occurred to me yes that is always how I write things just put another story on it <laughs> but because it was in first person and I didn't want to lose slightly difficult first person main character and I did have to work a bit to get her voice right it was it was quite interesting shifting around and changing voices to get those other stories told and then because because she's speaking in first person and then relating stories as other people told them to her they're necessarily in something like first person or in their version of third person. So it was, I think it grew that way a little bit. And the fact that I think in a story set in a crowded situation, it's easier to name fewer people. But in a, even though this is a very spread out geographic area, there are very few people in it. And to that extent, you usually know most people's names and it's a bit odd to refer to someone purely by their role right? when you also see them everywhere else. So I think part of that, I think the geogra- 
a geographic function is that you do in fact know everybody's names. <laughs> Various versions of the draft had a cast cast list at the beginning, <laughs> which I put in for the at first largely because I was rereading Picnic at Hanging Rock a lot at that time, and I love Picnic at Hanging Rock. But my favorite line in it, of several favorite lines, is the very end of the dramatis personae at the beginning there's a list of people in the novel which is also a very short novel and at the end it says you know and others who do not appear in this book which is a very odd thing to put at the end of a list of people who appear in your book (laughs) and and I love that I'm like what does it mean does it mean there's things happening off stage that we're not seeing which clearly or does it mean the further rippling effects of the plot, which is definitely like a, an explicit theme of the book, the consequences that keep rolling out. And so I was trying to play around a little bit with that. And we went back and forth a few times on taking, leaving it out and putting it back in again. I think in the end we left it out. But yes, all those names are partly because I wanted them to tell stories and I wanted them to be people who had encountered and run up against the history and the unexplained events around these towns in different ways. And also there's just some lovely era specific names that it's always fun to play with. Uh, Gwenda is Gwenda, right? Yes. (laughs) It's an excellent name. Um. I know a very nice Gwenda. (laughs) That's, That's also the trouble with this is because I grew up out West so many times. I'm like, I have to use this name because it seemed like, Two-thirds of the people had this name where I grew mm-hmm. up. But also, I have to give it to someone who could not possibly be mistaken for being based on one of the people who had that name. I was just scrolling through some of my highlights, and I, I highlighted a... There's a moment where a newspaper is found, and it says, Youths run amok, damage and disturbance, destruction of peace. And I highlighted destruction of peace, because is that just a... Is that just a cultural difference thing, or is that a very specific phrasing that you chose? I think it's a specific phrasing that I chose. Regional newspapers that I grew up with varied between really lovely local journalism and just a slightly idiosyncratic approach to the English language. (laughs) And, oh, I don't know where I put it. I was going through my parents' bookcase on the weekend, reading it for a couple of books, I found one which had this call for tips and tricks from farmers and graziers around Australia. It was it was sixties at the latest because it was still using English pounds, and it was just the the language around it was just delightful. And I wanted to capture a little bit of that, but partly also just to just to keep the writing a little off kilter to pick perhaps not the most obvious phrase either because the phrase wasn't that in use in this group of people, so they'd just go, something to distract and peace. It was worse than disturbance, these young hooligans yeah. running around. <laughs> yes, will you, this is a 200-pound competition for good ideas, which includes lines like, will you therefore cooperate by sending in your ideas? Um, is, this not, <laughs> is not this well worthwhile? Send your ideas in. Will you sit down straight away and do this? Holy shit, I love that. <laughs> It's wonderful. (laughs) Hundreds of farmers and graziers throughout Australia have devised some handy way of doing or making things. The publisher seeks their cooperation in the exchange of those ideas. (laughs) And although this is set a little later than the 60s, sometimes those particular phrasings fall through. And I think there's this, the more ideas are shared, the more there becomes a consensus way of doing something or saying something which I find really interesting, and even in art history, going back and looking at early drawings of kangaroos, you're like, that's not what a kangaroo looks like. (laughs) We know what kangaroos look like now. And then you actually go and look at a kangaroo and you're like, well, I guess from a certain light, or all of those, you know, medieval people didn't know how to draw cats memes. And then you you meet a particular cat and you're like, oh, no, no. (laughs) They weren't drawing the consensus view of a cat. They were drawing a specific, particularly ugly cat. And in fact, there's another cat that looks just like that cat. And even those phrases that get used in law and in newspapers and everything. I love the moments just before they become become consensus. Yeah, when there's there's still a, a, a bit of a rupture um, yes. in like in language or in art. And it's just like, I mean, yeah, and that specificity 
I mean, there's a reason I highlighted that, because I was like, this is... I mean, part of the reason I was like, maybe destruction of peace is just a, a phrase that I'm not familiar with, because I'm from California, and I've lived here my entire life, and, you know, I, I'm exposed to certain things from other cultures, but not everything. And But I was also like, even if that is the consensus term, it's so weird. <laughs> um, I had a little bit of freedom in confusing people that way because Tor.com were great. Alan Butler was great because she let me keep nearly all the Australianisms in this. There were only really one or two that we had to deal with. And that was because they either meant absolutely nothing whatsoever in American English or meant the exact opposite. <laughs> I was like, oh, fair enough. But there are a lot of, there are a lot of terms in there that are quite colloquial. Mm-hmm. And even a couple where I had to go home, go to my, call my parents up and ask them to call our old neighbors and go, what did we call this bird? Because I'm sure we called it a chatterjack. And I'm going through bird books and going through the Reader's Digest book of Australian birds. I'm looking at what bird is that. I'm on Wikipedia, <laughs> looking at everything. And I can find about 60 names for this bird, but not this particular one. And confirm that, yes, that was in fact what we all called it. But it was just one of the local names that didn't quite get into any of the collections of bird names in that form. I like that I, earlier I was like, let's, we should pivot away from like discussion of, of you know, like Aust- Australian like beauty and, and fairy tale structure. And we're totally just talking about it still because it's interesting. It's linguistics now. It's linguistics. <laughs> true, true. But I mean, like part of it, like when, when you were talking about like being in a small town means sort of knowing everyone's name, like whether you want to or not yes. <laughs> would be what, what my personal sort of small-ish town experience growing up was like. <laughs> it's um, I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe I'm abstracting too much to say that that is sort of also part of the beauty of the landscape is like, is knowing, you know, because landscape is both natural and also built, right? Like mm-hmm. the town is itself is, is landscape in, in, in certain ways. And like when you're in that situation where you know, like, not only like who works at the post office, but probably whose grandparent built that post office. Um, it's it, it it's a very different thing than being in a city or you know like seeing seeing like buildings going up and down constantly. Like you know, I I live in the Bay Area. Like a lot of development happening. Um, there is not that same relationship between the sort of natural and the built. And I love what you said there and the way like oh yes cities are so impermanent compared to small towns in some ways Mm -hmm. that sense of buildings rising and falling but I do love the idea of the people being part of the landscape because when I when I when I used to travel when I was able to travel and get to places like particularly museums I noticed it most when I went to the British Museum and wanted to see the Rosetta Stone there were all these people crowding around the Rosetta Stone and it was just that very I was very aware of that feeling of like why are all these people here they don't really want to see the Rosetta Stone they're just tourists <laughs> it's my Rosetta Stone and I backed yeah. off and was leaning against a wall sketching and as I was drawing the people around the Rosetta Stone because you couldn't really see the stone it was so delightful and they all loved it in their own ways and they were fascinated and starting to see people as part of the landscape in that sense as part of I don't know, drawing people, writing about people, whether it's specific named people in a small town or a mass of people in a city always makes me like them more. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Totally. It's, I mean, because you have to give yourself time to like really recognize that they, even if, you know, they're not your main character, they have their own interiority. And then you have to remember like, oh yeah, literally everyone does. Like every every single body is a whole person. Yes. (laughs) Even the fake ones that you make up and write about. <laughs> and that's fun. And I love cross-purposes or the slight idea that just a hint that someone else has their own preoccupations going on. Mm-hmm. And I really like reading Georgette Hare's <laughs> Regencies. And something she does is have a sense of... People often talk about in novels the fictional person who's larger than life and has all of this stuff going on. And I like the fictional people who are just slightly smaller than life. And mm-hmm. Jay and Barry's the fairies in Peter Pan who only have enough room for one emotion at a time. And I love that yeah. sense in fictional people that they're very intensely living their life and they don't realize that they're slightly condensed characters in a book. You can see the author doing terrible things around them and moving, <laughs> moving the board, but they're very sure they're real people. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually had a question about, um, 
Oh my god, I literally am forgetting the name of the main character of this book. <laughs> Bettina? Um, Tina? Tink? <laughs> Bettina, yes. Oh my god, thank you. Say. Uh, I read it today. That's <laughs> that's pretty rough. Fine. Because, um, <laughs> yeah, because you, you, you were saying earlier, like, that you were pretty attached to the, the first person point of view. And one of the things I noticed is, like, the... This is the part of the podcast where I start saying something and then realize that the way I wanted to phrase it would be kind of spoilery. So I kind of have to back off for a second (laughs) and rethink how I'm phrasing it. So yeah, I I was thinking a lot about um, about Bettina's sort of um, or yeah, the the first chunk of the novel, the way it it seems almost like I'm I've been listening to a a Vonnegut podcast recently so the phrase unstuck in time keeps coming up in my head um shout outs to grad school Vonnegut Aaron and Jerry do a good job uh even though I haven't read Vonnegut in well over a decade at this point it's really interesting hearing them talk about his books that has nothing to do with anything other than the phrase unstuck in time which I don't believe Bettina is in this novel but there is a there's a sense almost like when she's in her house or in the in the small town that she um, you know starts in, that it, it almost feels like there might be like hidden jump cuts or something. Like this might all be happening in an hour and a half, or it might be happening over the course of like weeks, which is a very sort of fairy tale time to me, at least. I I I have thoughts about that that we don't need to get into, but I w- I was wondering what what. Was that like an intentional um, thing? Because like I said, there's a, I think there is a textual evidence to support that there is something weird, if not like in terms of actual time, in terms of her perception of time at that point in the novel. But yeah, was that like an a thing you were going for? Or like, was that a, was that a writing choice, I guess? I suspect it's probably more of an outcome of a writing choice. Um, it's really interesting. T- like, I, I love hearing how you read it and what came across. And I find it very interesting because I think what I was going for was almost the opposite of being unstuck in time, that she's so only aware of the moment, mm. that she's so very anchored in a very particular narrow view of time that it's almost the same as being unstuck, but yeah. also that her her awareness of what is and has been going on beyond her garden almost is less than what it should be so to the extent that this happens in real time almost over the first chapter or two of the book it could also have been happening that way over and over again for weeks or months or years right yes it's just that there's been so little distinction in the days that she's not aware of anything new happening to set them apart and it was a really interesting point of view to get right, especially editing and with early readers, just going, okay, wanting her to be interesting or at least for the reader to be interested before her attention is captured and also wanting the reader to trust her to tell them at least a version of what is happening before we know whether she can be trusted and before she knows how to interpret the stories that she's hearing and whether it's willful or whether it's just her personality or whether it's something broader I I really enjoy having to balance multiple parts and it's a very interesting process getting through it but I think very much for her it was very this is what the shadows look like today this is what we have for breakfast today this is the next thing and the next thing just as it always has been or has it (laughs) I mean, yeah, and that's like I we haven't really talked broad thematic stuff, I guess. More like structural, but like I feel like the big themes that stood out to me in this book were like I mean, memory is a huge one and and stories as they, you know, construct memory but also produce new effects uh in the world. And yeah, thinking back on the beginning of the novel, like that is that it yeah, the and the way that 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 being stuck in a moment can be both being hyper focused on time and kind of unstuck within it or with in it unstuck in it now i'm now i'm hyper focusing on what unstuck in time means 
or any or indeed all of the above yeah (laughs) Uh, but the in that that hmm um (laughs) but the the way that yeah that that hyper focus and that timelessness that sort of almost mythic time where everything happens always the same way but differently um is is a consequence of memory in some way, right? Like Yes. And I think memory and what we choose to remember and what we're able to remember and what we're given the information to remember is definitely comes through as a theme in the book and developed into one. It's also I think tied to that sense of being of stories being where they didn't grow, which is also a large part of the story we tell we tell stories and to an extent they take on the shape of the places that we're telling them but often they're not from a particular place or they ignore stories that were there before and it's a very interesting one to handle I think judiciously it's very easy as well to disregard that and I mentioned earlier doing one-for-one fairy tale retelling is just swapping out elements and for me they have to work very hard to work and a beauty of both the gothic and fairy tale is that they're often about things being where they shouldn't be mm-hmm. and about <laughs> transplantation and adaptation and things taking over and things growing wild. And certainly growing up out west, very conscious, if not of all the human history of an area, very conscious of the introduced plant species of an area and which are toxic to which animals and you know, the the lantern bush in this story is loosely suggested by a couple of actual plants, including lantana and prickly pear, both of which were introduced and both of which caused a lot of destruction, particularly prickly pear. It has a fascinating, horrible, fascinating history in Queensland. Uh, and that seemed to be something that plants growing uncontrollably is a very fairy tale thing. And it's not a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> and it seems to fit incredibly well. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I mean, the lantern bush is maybe, maybe the standout image to me of the novel. Um, specifically, yeah. Well, I won't spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I enjoyed writing it. And again, making it something which, like prickly pear, like lantern, are incredibly beautiful plants in small areas, in gardens, <laughs> not... <laughs> Yes, and the sense that something is not rendered less beautiful by growing uncontrollably, but that something can be horrific and terrifying in its beauty without having to call the beauty into question. Yeah. There is a line very near the beginning of the book where it's, I have it open. So it's, the idea of rebelling against my own better judgment tasted as good as salt. And I highlighted that because I could not, I, okay, my first thought was like, I just reread um, the Book of Salt by Monique Trong like recently, so I've been thinking a lot about salt in books, and part of that is like salt as a metaphor for taste is usually I feel like either a discussion of the ocean or of sexuality or like carnal desire, like the the sweat on somebody's body being salty, or it's very specific. F- food related stuff and this is none of those things and i was trying to think of what this particularly was because salt as a singular taste i i don't know i've i have enjoyed just like putting salt in my mouth but i also have weird particular tastes it's not a thing that most people love but also salt is the foundation of flavor in most dishes um i think that conflict is probably as far as I can remember what I was going for there, my primary ideas of salt are in books are sort of biblical. And then there's a line mm. in um, oh, King Lear, obviously. I love you as meat loves salt. Unfortunately, I always start giggling when I hear about salt in books because of Dirty Smith's I Capture the Castle. I said, I, oh, no, which book is it? It's not I Capture the Castle. That also has a moustache in it. Some book, someone said, kissing a man with a mus- without a moustache is like eating an egg without salt. <laughs> <laughs> and it was such 
a confronting and vivid image <laughs> that I've never <laughs> shaken it. And I cannot remember what it was from. It's not I Capture the Castle because she has the opposite reaction to that. Um, <laughs> and so whenever there's a reference to, whenever people talk about salt in literature, I just fall about laughing and that's why. That is not what I was thinking about yeah. <laughs> with this line. But it was that combination of salt tasting good but also salt being repellent. But also you put salt licks and molasses licks out for animals in drought and it it is that conflict it's something that could be good for you could be bad for you it's not the ocean connection because Bettina presumably has never seen the ocean um, my little sister the first time she was taken to the sea walked up the dunes and over and she said what a big dam <laughs> so it's just that sense of growing up and never seeing <laughs> <laughs> never seeing an ocean so yeah that idea of it being something that adds flavor but perhaps you don't know yet if you like that flavor or if it's going to make you die of thirst yes it's such a good line i mean <laughs> i guess it's just uh it's i always appreciate a metaphor that that can spiral me off spiral me off into a billion different thoughts about a completely unrelated thing <laughs> um, just being like I just want to think about salt for 20 minutes now. So I'm going to put the book down and like uh, sweep my house and think about salt and then come back to it and be like, that was a really nice. Thank you for writing that. <laughs> I do like that. The usefulness of I've talked a couple of times about trying to steer between different aspects, balancing them when writing. And I, I love that in specific metaphors as well that sense that they're very specific to the person and even if they don't quite tell you exactly what the feeling is hopefully you get what it felt like to that person you know that to her it felt this way and yeah. that if it doesn't tell you more about the feeling at least it tells you more about her I was trying something similar later in the book I think the line about someone's eyes being warm as a winter sky blue eyes as warm as a winter sky and again just trying to I'm happy whichever way the reader reads that, whether they're like, oh, they weren't warm at all because winter skies are cold, or I'm looking out at a winter sky right now. Winter skies that I think of here are a hot blue, very warm blue, clear, but it's still got the winter aspect to it. And just because something's warm in colour doesn't mean it's warm in temperature. Yeah. So should we do uh, one more taste of, of the actual writing before we uh, before we sign off? I guess so. I just want to keep talking about books. <laughs> I want to keep talking about me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really nice hearing other people talk about the book because work on it for so long. And then suddenly other people read it. You're like, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a real thing. With it's a real thing. <laughs> and also I got, I got into this whole both careers, writing and illustrating, because I happen to ha like hanging out with people talking about stories. And it's exciting to be contributing to that more than in just the talking side of it. But don't let that stop me talking. <laughs> <clears throat> this is an extract from the chapter, The Sawmill. Let's say the boy was called Jack. Boys in fairy tales always are. Thirteen years old and too small for it. Certain the world was withholding something, burned to freckles except for his feet inside his boots and his skinny chest beneath his shirt pale as a fish belly. His dad was a contractor, they moved about, but he had lived around Inglewell all his life, and if he'd paid more attention to the stories he'd heard, he'd have known better. His old uncle knocked on the door of the caravan one day. Jack, he said furtively, I've got a job for you. Jack's mother would have asked, Davy Spicer, is this something dangerous? But she was working at the library. There used to be one at Carter's Crossing on Tuesdays. So Jack asked, how much? As much as you're worth, said his uncle. Get down here. Jack jumped into the long grass around the caravan. His uncle cuffed the back of his head, not quite affectionately, and they climbed into Uncle Davy's low-slung Holden Kingswood WV, the best ute in the world. It was a long drive, but where isn't? They went by back roads and across paddocks. Jack climbed up and down, opening sagging wire gates. His uncle said, just leave them, they're no friends of ours. But Jack knew that much about the world. He levered each one closed again. They ran out of tracks. Wattled saplings whipped the ute's bull bar, dragged under and sprang up again. Then Uncle Davy stopped at a fence, properly built, with a metal gate in it. 
On the other side, tangled with glittering box and old iron bark, was a crowd of cypress pines, dark save for the blue-green buds of their pine cones. There was a dent in them that might have been the start of a track. Get on with it, said his uncle. Jack dropped into the wire grass and waded to the gate. It was tall as he was, latched with a chain and a metal hook, rusted tight but not locked. He had to shoulder it open against the clawing cotton bush, bracing into the bars and pushing with his legs straight. His uncle drove through and Jack closed it again, fumbling with the chain. The cypress pines pressed pungent against the windows and shrieked over the top of the ute, hissing and rattling along the tray. Once Jack and his uncle had to drag a fallen tree clear of their path. Then the way opened into weeds and cotton bush. They were at the end of the track. Jack's uncle killed the engine. In front of them, there had once been several small huts. Their timbers were grey and splintered, corrugated roofs corroded and folded in, porches sagging. A shed had collapsed over flakes of orange rust. What is it? asked Jack. Sawmill, said his uncle. Was. He gestured to a length of track. An iron trolley propped up one end of the fallen roof. But what are we going to do? His uncle pointed towards the third hut. You, he said, are going in there to fetch out what you find. Why me, said Jack. Because you're a skinny runt and the floors are rotten, said his uncle. There'll be a box of old glass bottles. He tossed his pocket knife to Jack. Make it snappy, I'll be waiting. The steps creaked and cracked. Something rustled hurriedly under them. Get on with it, said his uncle. He isn't close family, Jack reminded himself. Probably there were snakes in the hut, definitely below it. The splintered boards of the narrow porch gaped under his boots. When he grabbed one of the posts, the roof shifted. His uncle laughed, a sharp bark. Jack, straightening, trod carefully where nails bled rust onto the planks and hoped the beams were solid. The door hung at an angle from a hinge of riveted leather. The lower one had been gnawed through. Jack eased it open and edged into the hut. The darkness surprised him. Hot slivers of blue sky were bright through gaps in the roof and blades of shining dust floated between the boards over the window, but even with the door ajar, the light didn't get far. Well, called his uncle, can you see it? It's dark, shouted Jack. The ceiling creaked like footsteps. He lowered his voice and hissed over his shoulder. I can't see. Air brushed his face. Air, or spiders. He heard his uncle tramping through the grass. Jack, just inside the door, waited for his eyes to adjust. Slumped shadows, cushions hanging heavy with rot. Oddly, he could not smell mice. Only mouldy cloth, dry wood, and beneath that a stale draught rising through the floorboards, damply cold on his shins. Weren't there stories about sinkholes and caves? He shifted his foot. Something light sifted between the planks. Splinters, perhaps, or leaves. He didn't hear it hit anything. Even if the ground was only half a metre beneath him, he wouldn't hear a leaf hit it. But the possibility that the ground was just maybe far, far more than a metre away kept him motionless until his uncle tramped back and rolled a torch across the porch and through the door. It drummed on the floor, loud as the beating of Jack's heart in his ears. I want to come out, Jack said. Get the bottle first, said his uncle. Jack turned, but his uncle had stepped onto the porch. He pushed the door shut, and Jack couldn't find a handle. He hammered on the timber. Shut that racket, said his uncle, or you'll bring the whole place down. Something slid off the roof and crashed into the grass. Jack found the torch and switched it on. He was in a small square room crowded with discarded boxes. Their corners had swollen and split, spilling toys onto the floor, faded plastic trucks and bald baby dolls with naked cotton bodies. They smelled bad and shivered in the torchlight. Jack edged his way between them into the centre of the hut. This wasn't antiques, just trash someone hadn't bothered taking to the tip. With the knife, he levered up the corner of a lid. Paper, gnawed to lace. Silverfish scattered, grey in the light. Who's at the sunshine? Read part of a yellowed newspaper on a flattish parcel. Jack prodded it. A plate. A sagging narrow mattress, badly stained. Boxes labelled in marker that had run in brownish-purple streaks. Tax plus rain gauge, said one. It only had empty photo albums in it. Masking tape peeled off the cardboard like bark. Tools. Fence strainers and old saws, which he understood, and others he didn't. Jack, I'm looking! 
But there, on the far side of the room, on a rickety rocking chair, its legs held together with twisted cord, was a box of bottles. They were not beer bottles or coke bottles or even wine flagons. They were all much smaller and much older. Their edges were blurred and their sides were milky, green and amber and deep midnight blue with ink or poison or names pressing up out of the glass itself. I've found it, said Jack. The bottom of the box sagged dangerously. He had to balance the torch on top of the bottles under his chin. The floor was a pool of shadow. He couldn't see if he was stepping on top of the beams. Hurry up, called Uncle Davy. Although there were cracks in the walls and door, he sounded a long way away. I am, grated Jack. Then a floorboard broke and his foot went through. Excellent. Thank that you. story is great. Um, yeah, that bit is, yeah, really good. Uh, <laughs> I actually went out to the area I grew up in uh, last year here before, and the sawmill location is based on a place that was near the corner of our property. And I drove back out there, and I parked, and I climbed over the fence, and I walked through the trees, and then I started freaking myself out <laughs> because I'd have written this story, and this was the last imprint I had in my, even though. I really liked the place. It was sort of a site of enchantment. <laughs> I managed to actually scare myself <laughs> from the story. And you're walking out and the grass is dry. And I'm like, I listen to too many crime podcasts and watch too many like British cozy crime stories. This is not a good idea. I know this isn't a good idea. Why am I doing this? <laughs> and it was, it was quite strange visiting a place that I knew but had had a story about it in the interim. But you probably can't see it from here. The actual rocking chair with its legs tw tied together with twine is behind me in the room. It never quite made it to the sawmill. We kept that one. Nice. <laughs> so how can how is the best way to support you on on the internet? What's your what's your socials? How do how do people get in contact with you and buy your book? Well, they can buy the book. I hope from all good bookstores, <laughs> and it is available for pre order order everywhere now in. America, it's from tour.com, and in Australia, it's from Picador Australia. I would suggest you contact your favorite independent bookstore, <laughs> or just any bookstore, um, to buy the book. Uh, in terms of finding me online, I am difficult to avoid. <laughs> I'm on a lot of <laughs> I'm on a lot of places under the difficult to pronounce Tan Audel, T A N A U D E L on Twitter, Facebook. Instagram, occasionally on Tumblr, and my blog is tanordell.wordpress.com. But I'm slightly easier to find at my portfolio website, which is kathleenjennings.com, and that has links to the blog. And I'm on Patreon as an illustrator at Tanordell. So it's a Diana Wynne Jones reference for anyone who is wondering where it came from, and I'm stuck with that. I don't <laughs> mind being stuck with it now. It's just always I have to spell it out a lot. <laughs> And yeah, so I do, I do actually keep a blog with a lot about, I suppose, the, the creative process because I've been teaching that at university this semester and a lot of art and illustration and writing as well. I, I, did, uh, I did check out your Twitter before we talked and it seemed like you had, was it an Etsy store with a bunch of masks on it? Redbubble. So on Redbubble they Redbubble, yes. have yes. a mask option. So, yeah, uh, and I, do I was so. looking through those, and there's some. Um, yeah, <laughs> the, what was it? Um, the selkie one. I was like, hmm, hmm. <laughs> I may, I may need a new mask soon. Try to have fairy tales for everyone, so, so. <laughs> quite fun having a terrible reason for it, but it's quite fun having a new canvas to play on. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> T-shirts are out. Well, no. Keep wearing yeah. t-shirts, people. <laughs> <laughs> well, depending on what level of, of <laughs> lockdown you're in, you may not need a t-shirt most days. <laughs> t-shirt weather. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, but yeah, so I am on Patreon at Ben Laden, B-E-N-L-A-D-E-N, -E uh, Twitter at the same. Also, we are recording this on International Non-Binary Day, and so I wanted to say, like, and also that um, 
yeah, Black Trans Lives Matter. Like, look up GoFundMes, look up local organizations to help make this world a better place for people to live in. And with that, I want to thank WJ for our music, who is on SoundCloud, and Kathleen for being here. Uh, this was like, I feel like the most natural conversation I've had so far, and it was it was really just really nice to chat with you and and deep dive into Australia and fairy tales and salt. <laughs> Thank you so much. I had a really fun conversation. 